Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Engaging the Experts, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Travis Carlson, and I'll be your host today. I'm an assistant professor at High Point University School of Pharmacy. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Kelly Ravellis, an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy. We are faculty for an educational initiative titled Existing and Emerging Clostridioides Difficile Infection Therapies, Importance of Microbiome Restoration, that is supported by an educational grant from Farron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started. Dr. Ravellis, can you please discuss the current epidemiology of C. difficile infections and tell us what makes this bacterium such a dangerous pathogen? Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Carlson. So just as a review for everyone, so Clostridioides difficile, or C. diff for short, is a gram-positive, spore-forming, anaerobic, and toxin-producing bacterium. And C. diff exists actually predominantly in its spore form, which is one of the reasons it's really difficult to prevent and treat, because the C. diff spores are resistant to disinfectants, they can bypass the stomach acid and colonize the lower gastrointestinal tract, and they're also not killed by antibiotics. And so once those spores make their way down and colonize the lower GI tract, C. diff can then germinate and begin producing toxins. And it's really these toxins that lead to the clinical signs and symptoms of C. difficile infection or CDI, which is predominantly diarrhea. But in more severe cases, patients may experience really severe complications like dehydration, acute kidney injury, sepsis, or other GI complications like toxic megacolon. Now, some of the best nationally representative CDF epidemiology data comes from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in a 2020 publication by Gu and colleagues. And this study reported that we have nearly half a million cases of C. diff infection in the U.S. every year, and that just under 30,000 C. diff patients die annually. Now, C. diff can be acquired in both healthcare or community settings. And in fact, C. difficile is still the most common pathogen implicated in healthcare-associated infections in the U.S., outpacing both both Staph aureus and E. coli. Now, that same publication by Gu and colleagues reported that healthcare-associated C. diff infection incidence has actually declined in recent years, but the incidence of community-onset C. diff has remained unchanged, so it's still pretty common in community settings as well. And it's really because of these epidemiological data and the significant impact of C. diff on patients in the healthcare system that the CDC originally declared C. diff as an urgent public health threat in the U.S. in 2013, and it remains so today. Now, one of the more difficult challenges with C. diff infection is the risk for recurrent infections. So, Dr. Carlson, how common are C. diff recurrences, and what impact do recurrences have on patients in the healthcare system? Excellent question. Well, roughly 25% of patients experience a recurrence after their first or initial CDI episode. And of course, this number will vary based on the treatment that was used to treat that initial infection. For example, in the phase three clinical trials for fidaxomycin, while approximately 25% of patients in the vancomycin arm developed a recurrent infection, only about 15% of those in the fidaxomycin experienced a recurrence. 
The rate of recurrence also depends on the number of previous infections. The most commonly quoted recurrence rates that I hear really stem from this 2012 article by Karen Kelly that talks about 25% recurrence after the first episode of C. difficile infection, and then that vicious cycle continues. Of those that recur, 45% of them will have an additional episode. And then if they get all the way to a second recurrence, 65% of those patients will have a recurrence. Up until recently, there's been relatively little high-quality evidence establishing those recurrence rates in patients with multiply recurrent CDI because those patients simply weren't enrolled in randomized control trials. However, they were in phase three clinical trials for some of the products we're going to talk about more extensively later. Those products are Rebiota and Vaust. And indeed, the recurrence rates in the placebo groups in those trials were approximately 40%. Now, the majority of patients, actually all of those patients had at least one recurrence infection. The majority of them had two or more recurrences. And so this kind of proves in a randomized control setting with all the oversight and protocols that recurrence rate is about 40-ish percent in patients with multiply recurrent C. diff infection. So certainly burdensome for our patients in the healthcare system. Now, any infection recurrence is not ideal, but not only does this place a burden on our patients, but also their quality of life and then the health system as a whole. Patients with recurrent CDI are more likely to be hospitalized than those with an initial infection. In fact, depending on the study you read, the percentages are going to be a bit different, but between 33 and 50% of patients with recurrent C. diff are hospitalized. Second, patients with recurrent CDI have a poor quality of life than those with an initial infection. And lastly, with more hospitalizations, of course, comes a large burden on our healthcare system. So patients with recurrent C. diff infection have been shown to have longer hospital stays and thus, of course, higher hospital costs. So a burden on our healthcare system, our hospitals, and then those patients that are hospitalized with a recurrent infection are now shedding spores that Dr. Ravels mentioned earlier, leading to increased transmission and the vicious cycle all over again. Dr. Ravels, why do recurrences happen and how can we as clinicians help our patients prevent recurrent C. difficile infection? Mm -hmm. Great question. So the pathogenesis of both that primary C. diff infection and then recurrent episodes are both really tightly linked to disruption of our normal healthy gut microbiome. And just to give you an idea of the scope of the microbiome, healthy individuals have upwards of 100 trillion microbial cells representing at least 2,000 different bacterial species in and on our body. And the highest concentration of these bacteria is in the gastrointestinal tract, particularly the lower tract in the colon. Now, these microbes help to prevent C. diff infection normally by competing with C. diff for nutrients, modulating the immune system, and maintaining our gut epithelial barrier. But just about every class of antibiotics, particularly our broader spectrum agents, can deplete our commensal gut microbes. And a term you often hear is dysbiosis, which refers to a disturbance or change in either the diversity or the composition of these microbes, which can then lead to some sort of adverse functional change in the ecosystem. 
So some of the typical structural changes that you'll see in the microbiome with dysbiosis include a loss of microbial diversity, which basically means there's a fewer total number of different microbes in the ecosystem. It could be a loss of core microbiota from the major bacterial phyla or an increase in the abundance of certain potentially pathogenic organisms. And we really see all three of these trends in those primary episodes of C. diff infection. And then even more so, some more profound dysbiosis in patients who experience recurrences. And so what happens is you have a patient with a primary C. diff episode, their microbiome's already in dysbiosis, but then you treat them with antibiotics to kill C. diff. And these antibiotics, particularly oral vancomycin, will continue to disrupt the gut microbiome and can lead to these subsequent recurrences of infection. So nowadays we really have three main pharmacotherapeutic strategies to prevent recurrences. First, among the available standard of care antibiotics, Fidaxomycin is preferentially recommended as first-line therapy for C. diff infection treatment in the most recent update of the IDSA clinical practice guidelines. And fidaxomycin is preferred because it has a much more narrow spectrum of activity. And so it has less collateral damage to the gut microbiome and ultimately was found in clinical trials to have much lower rates of C. diff recurrence because of this, as Dr. Carlson mentioned previously. Our next strategy is bezlotuximab. So bezlotuximab is a monoclonal antibody that provides passive immunity against C. diff toxin B, one of the major C. diff toxins. And bezlotuximab was FDA approved for the prevention of recurrent C. diff infection when combined with standard of care antibiotics. And because it was shown to significantly reduce C. diff infection recurrence rates in clinical trials. Now, it was particularly effective in certain groups that were at high risk for recurrences. So think older adults, those with severe C. diff episodes, immunocompromised individuals, and then those with a prior C. diff episode. And then lastly, since the pathogenesis of recurrent C. diff infection has been so tightly linked to the microbiome, there's been a lot of interest in microbiome restoration therapies as potential preventative tools. So the most commonly studied microbiome therapeutics in C. diff infection have been probiotics and fecal microbiota transplantation, or FMT. A probiotics specifically are defined as live microorganisms and often a single or, or combination of microbial strains that are intended to help compete with pathogens for resources, improve our gut barrier, and provide for immunomodulation. Now, in contrast, traditional FMT refers to the installation of healthy donor feces into the intestinal tract of a C. diff patient, either via the upper or lower gastrointestinal route. And FMT is really intended to provide whole microbiome restoration to help prevent subsequent recurrences. Now, while FMT is currently guideline recommended for multiply recurrent C. diff infection, it's been difficult to implement into clinical practice for a variety of reasons. So Dr. Carlson, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just some of the reasons that FMT has been difficult to implement in practice and some of the limitations around this therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. I can talk about that. I think perhaps the biggest limitation to traditional FMT is the accessibility. It's an appropriately screened donor stool. Traditional FMT requires, first off, that healthy donors provide stool samples. So the first bottleneck in the, you know, like getting patients access to this therapy is the number of patients willing to donate their stool. After it's collected from these healthy donors, the stool has to be screened for potential pathogens, which is costly and resource intensive. So either an institution has to develop their own protocols to do 
this screening, which includes screening for these pathogenic organisms. And those programs are often referred to as quote unquote homegrown programs, or the institution has to coordinate with the stool bank who collects the donor stool as a third party, performs all of the screening, and then simply ships it to the institution. Once it gets shipped to the institution, the providers there have the expertise and the experience instilling these products. So as Dr. Ravellis mentioned, you can instill it in several different ways, sometimes via colonoscopy, sometimes orally, but the physicians at your site have to have that expertise in order to do that. And because of all of these limitations and because of the long process that the sample goes through from being donated by the patient to at the bedside with the recipient, not all U.S. hospitals perform this procedure. In fact, quite a few do not. Then, of course, there's the problem with novel pathogens being transmitted in this quote-unquote healthy donor stool. The most notable and almost the most recent example was SARS-CoV-2. So now every time a pathogen is identified, we have to go through the process of identifying if it's excreted in the stool, and then we have to revise our screening procedures to ensure that it isn't transmitted to the recipient of the FMT. And although SARS-CoV-2 is one example, it's certainly not going to be the last example. So that's a big limiting factor in the availability of these traditional FMT products. And then while FMD has been extensively studied, Dr. Ravellis covered that very nicely in that there have been several randomized control trials over the years. Those randomized control trials are not necessarily consistent in the outcomes that they collect. So they're very heterogeneous. They come along from different institutions with different screening procedures, and there's not consistent universal oversight of all these FMT products. Specifically, they're not approved by the FDA, and there are no standards that have been developed for the number of bacteria in each of these FMT products. So while they're following the same basic procedure of collecting donor stool, screening, and then instilling it into the patient, institutions are inevitably administering slightly different products because there's no standard procedures to ensure that that's not the case. Another factor historically limiting uptake of FMT is acceptability, both by patients and physicians. Interestingly, there's been some qualitative research done, which describes both patient and provider feelings towards FMT. And surprisingly, patients overwhelmingly support FMT, especially those that have received it in the past. And relatively few are turned off by what you might call the gross factor, or the yuck factor. On the other hand, physicians who were surveyed actually thought most patients would not want an FMT. And a quarter of physicians who never recommended FMT in the past did so specifically because they thought the patient would find it too unappealing. So clearly there's a disconnect between patient's acceptability of FMT and the provider's expectations of the patient's acceptability of FMT, which just means that we have to provide more education surrounding traditional FMT and therapies that are helping us to do the same thing. Now, to address some of the limitations of traditional FMT, several microbiome restoration products have been in development, which aim to seek FDA approval under a newer category called Live Biotherapeutic Products, or LBPs. Dr. Ravellis, what are LBPs, and do we have any CDR therapeutics approved in this category? 
I am happy to report that we do. But first to just introduce you to the definition here, live biotherapeutic product or LBP is defined as a biological product other than a vaccine that contains live microorganisms that are designed to prevent, treat, or cure a disease. And this is the FDA category that these microbiome therapeutics would fall under. And we have several LBPs in the pipeline, but today I really want to focus on the two that we now have FDA approval for, for the prevention of current C. diff infection. So the first one is Rebiota, which was FDA approved in November of 2022, specifically for adults with recurrent C. diff infection, following standard of care antibiotics, to prevent further episodes of recurrent C. diff infection. Now, this product, it gets a little confusing. It was originally studied under the name RBX2660, and then the approved generic name is Fecal Microbiota Live-JSLM. And so to be a little more concise today, we'll stick with brand names. But Rebiota is a suspension of a broad consortium of live microbes that's prepared from human stool that's collected from really rigorously screened healthy donors. The product undergoes comprehensive pathogen testing and then is processed to a stable cryopreserved liquid suspension that's stored frozen, but then can also be stored up to five days in the refrigerator before the procedure. It's prepared as a 150 milliliter suspension for a one-time administration via NMA. And what's great about this compared to traditional FMT is it is standardized to a minimum number of live bacteria, as well as a minimum number of organisms from the Bacteroides genus. Now, our second product is called Vaust, and it was just approved in April of 2023 with a similar indication as Rebiota. So it's indicated for adults with recurrent C. diff infection, following standard of care antibiotics to prevent future recurrent C. diff episodes. Now, this product was originally studied under the name SEER109, and its generic name is Equal Microbiota Spores Live-BRPK. So, VAUS is a preparation of purified bacterial spores, specifically from the Firmicutes phylum, and these spores are intended to compete with C. difficile for nutrients and convert the microenvironment from one that you originally would be growth promoting, but then the spores convert it to growth inhibiting. And Vaus is manufactured really by taking human donor stool and fractionating out the bacterial spores and then inactivating potential pathogens. So this is an advantage over traditional FMT. And these spores would then be packaged into capsules for oral delivery. And it's administered as four capsules by mouth once daily for three days. Now, because these bacterial spores are very hardy, the capsules can actually be stored at room temperature, which is really nice for long-term storage. Now, a few different things that differentiate these two live biotherapeutic products. You know, first is route of administration. So Rebiota is delivered via enema, whereas Faust is oral. Next, Rebiota does not require bowel preparation prior to administration, but it's recommended that Faust is, and is primarily related to the oral route of administration. And this is how it was studied in clinical trials, primarily with a magnesium citrate bowel prep prior to administration. And then lastly, both of these have really short courses of therapy which is great. Rebiota is a single enema dose, whereas Vows is given orally over three days. It's super duper important to note that both of these products do require standard of care antibiotics prior to administration because we need to make sure we're killing off the actively growing C. diff prior to restoring the microbiome with these therapeutics.
And so, you know, one of the questions I'm sure will come up is how do I pick between these two? So some of the factors that you may consider when choosing between these agents. First, access, which can you get for your patient? Patient and provider preference, potential interactions with other medications, convenience and ease of administration, ability to swallow capsules. As some of these C. different patients may have very severe nausea, requirements for pretreatment, like the bowel prep, and then of course, site of care. So obviously, you know, these two products were FDA approved. So Dr. Carlson, can you talk a little bit about what the efficacy and safety data were that supported these approvals as live biotherapeutic products? Yeah, sure thing. So I'm going to go through the phase three clinical trial data. And just so we're all on the same page in terms of terminology, Rebiota was studied in a phase three trial called PUNCH CD3, which I'll refer to over the next couple minutes here, while VAUS was studied in a phase three clinical trial called Ecospore 3. And it's worth noting that the inclusion and exclusion criteria were slightly different for these two trials. In the case of Rebiota's PUNCH CD3 trial, they included patients with at least one C. diff recurrence. So they had to have a history of a C. diff episode. Now they're presenting with a recurrence. About a third of the patients they enrolled actually had greater than three prior C. diff episodes, but it's worth noting that they could enroll patients with just one previous episode. While in the VAUST clinical trial, they required that patients have at least two recurrences in the past year. Again, about a third of patients had greater than three prior C. diff episodes. And then in terms of exclusion criteria, in the Rebiota clinical trial, they excluded patients with a known history of inflammatory bowel disease, so ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, excluded those with a compromised immune system, those taking systemic steroids of a certain dose for a certain duration, and those with an absolute neutrophil count of less than 1,000. And the exclusion criteria for the BOUST Ecospore 3 trial were similar in that they excluded patients with a known history of IBD. They excluded patients receiving concurrent intensive induction chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or biologic treatment for an active malignancy, and those with an absolute neutrophil count of less than 500. So generally, to kind of tie together, they excluded patients that are immunocompromised, which is understandable for a registration trial. In terms of efficacy, both agents showed significant reduction in the number of patients that experienced recurrent infection, which is really what we're trying to prevent by replenishing the gut microbiome. I'm going to talk about the outcomes using a term called sustained clinical response, which is actually the reciprocal of recurrence. So these are patients that effectively treated for C. difficile infection and then didn't have recurrence. In PUNCH CD3, there were 62% of patients in the placebo group that experienced sustained clinical response, while 71% in the Rebiota group experienced sustained clinical response. Then that data was paired with the phase two data, and they used a Bayesian statistical analysis method to determine that with 99% likelihood, Rebiota would be superior to placebo in terms of reducing that recurrence rate. In Ecospore, 60% of patients in the placebo group had sustained clinical response, while 87.6% of patients experienced sustained clinical response. That efficacy 
largely remained steady at the six-month follow-up period. So while 71% of patients in the rebiota group experienced sustained clinical response at eight weeks, 65.5% maintained that, that sustained clinical response at six months. And for EgoSpore 3, where at eight weeks, 87.6% of most patients had sustained clinical response, 78% of them maintained that at six months. And in the Rebiota Phase 2 clinical trial, they continued to follow those patients over the course of two years. And they determined that of the responders at eight weeks, 97% of them maintained that sustained clinical response at six months, 95% at 12 months, and 90% at 24 months. So it appears that these LBPs work to reduce recurrence in the short term and maintain that benefit in the long term. Regarding safety, in the PUNCH CD3 trial for rebiota, about half of patients, both in the rebiota placebo arm, experienced any adverse effect. So slightly higher in the rebiota, these were primarily mild to moderate gastrointestinal adverse effects. So things like diarrhea, abdominal pain, flatulence, even constipation. And then for VAUST in the EgoSpore 3 trial, 93% of patients experienced any adverse effect in the VAUST group, while 91% did in the placebo group. And again, these were mild to moderate gastrointestinal symptoms primarily. There was two patients that were randomly assigned to rebiota that died during the study. However, neither death was deemed to be related to treatment or the administration procedure. And similarly, there were three deaths that occurred in the VAUST-treated patients, Nicospore 3, none of which they were deemed to be drug-related. Another benefit of these LBPs is that they actually improve patients' quality of life. So I mentioned earlier that patients with recurrent disease have a lower quality of life than those experiencing an initial infection. So we expect quality of life to be low when they're starting these therapies. And ideally, we would want that to increase over time. And there's data now to suggest that that occurs with these LBPs. Rebiota hasn't published their data in manuscript form yet, but there were data presented at ID Week 2022 and showed that Rebiota significantly increased change in the CDF32 score from baseline when compared to placebo. Voust does have data published, and they also demonstrated that Voust showed an improvement from baseline CDF32 score, and that was statistically significant from the change in baseline in the placebo-treated patients. All right. Dr. Ravellis, do you think that these live biotherapeutic products offer any advantages over traditional FMT? And how do you envision these being implemented into clinical practice? Yeah, you know, I do think there are some significant advantages to LBPs compared to traditional fecal microbiota transplantation or FMT. So first, both Rebiota and Valus have now been granted FDA approval. So that means that they've had rigorous safety and efficacy data to support approval. And these products also have manufacturing standardization procedures. So each contains a minimum number or concentration of microbes processed using good manufacturing practices. So this helps ensure just better product consistency, especially compared to our old homegrown FMT, as you mentioned, Travis. 
And so FDA approval also should help provide more consistent access to these microbiome restoration products through our typical distribution channels. Now, that being said, implementation of new therapeutics, particularly in this new FDA approval category, and as many of us know in the infectious disease space, can be particularly challenging. And so some of the major questions that I get asked regularly are, whom do we use these therapeutics in? How do we acquire, store, and administer the products? And then are they cost-effective? So for the first question, you know, each of these therapeutics was studied a little bit differently, as Dr. Carlson mentioned. So Rebiota was studied in C. diff patients as early as the first recurrence, whereas Vaus was studied in C. diff patients with a second or subsequent recurrence. But, but Vaus does have some open label study data for the first recurrences. But despite this, both products have an indication for recurrent C. diff in adults to prevent those subsequent recurrences. So either product theoretically could be used as early as the first recurrence. Now, Rebiota can be administered in really any healthcare facility, but it's more beneficial from a payer perspective to administer it in the outpatient setting just due to the billing structure. Now, Vaus was studied in outpatients as well and will likely be recommended to administer at outpatient too. Now, in terms of access and storage, Rebiota is available through major distributors like McKesson and comes frozen and can be stored long-term in the very low temp freezer, so the negative 80 degrees Celsius freezers. But, you know, as I mentioned previously, it can be stored in the refrigerator for up to five days prior to administration. So that should help if it's being used in facilities that don't have those ultra-low temp freezers. Now, Vaus is expected to become available here in about another month or two, so about June 2023 and it's expected to come through specialty pharmacies. Now, again, it's room temperature stable, so that should help with that long-term storage. And then one of the questions that seems to come up a lot, Dr. Carlson, is whether these LMPs can be stored with other medications. And the answer is yes. They come in strong packaging, so there should be no risk of leakage or transmission of the organisms from the packaging to other items that you're storing them with. And then lastly, of course, the price tag. So these agents may come with a little bit of sticker shock, but given the large cost burden to patients and the healthcare system related to the treatment of recurrent C. diff, it's highly likely that these are cost-effective agents. Now, given that VAUS was so newly approved, we don't have projected cost information, at least at the time of this recording. For Rebiota, though, the budget impact and cost-effectiveness data for that product were recently presented at the annual Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy meeting down here in C. Antonio. And these studies found that Rebiota compared to standard of care alone would result in cost savings to health plans. And that compared to standard of care Rebiota, which is priced at about $9,000 per course, resulted in an incremental cost effectiveness ratio of about $18,000 per quality adjusted life year gained. The ISOR is even lower when used for the first recurrence, which is expected because the earlier you use these products to prevent recurrence, the more you prevent downstream healthcare costs. So overall, I do believe that these new LBPs will be accessible and, of course, an important component of C. diff therapy in addition to our traditional standard of care antibiotics. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Ravels. That's all we have time for. I want to again thank Dr. Ravels for joining me today and thank you for tuning into this session of Engaging the Experts. Don't forget to check out our mid-year midday symposium and the Ask the Experts webinars on elearning.ashp.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. 
be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.